Welcome to the VO2 Lounge podcast. In this episode, I will be talking all about the vegan diet from the perspective of its effects on human health and athletic performance and not the environmental and ethical implications of the diet. When covering diets in general, it is a bit like opening a can of worms. There's so much information on the internet and opinions, but when looking for some results and data from studies, you're met with a lot of observational work and unclear findings. In the episode, I aim to go over some of the high-level benefits of the diet, um, a breakdown of common vegan nutritional intakes, protein quality and quantity and around the vegan diet, uh, variables affecting your protein intake and your protein requirements, uh, as this is particularly important when considering a diet that is restricting food groups, um, the issues surrounding plant-based protein and uh, protein availability, Uh, exercise performance and the implications that the diet may have on that Uh, the diet and its weight loss implications um, its effects on the gut microbiome and then various deficiencies and a list of the uh, vitamins and minerals that you may become deficient in and solutions to maintaining adequate levels before going any further i would like to get this disclaimer out of the way The content and the materials featured or linked to in this podcast are for your information and education only and are not intended to address your particular personal requirements. The information does not constitute medical advice or recommendation and should not be considered as such. I'm not a medical professional and therefore not able to provide medical advice. Right, so let's start with somewhat of an introduction to the diet. Uh, In the media, The plant-based diets are deemed to provide well-established physical and environmental health benefits. Uh, These benefits stem in part from the degree of restriction of animal-derived foods. Uh, Historically, meat and other animal-derived proteins have been viewed as an integral component of athletes' diets, leading people to question the adequacy of vegetarian or vegan diets for supporting athletic performance and general health for that matter. And we're talking beyond uh, the uh, like recommended daily amounts. Based on the current available literature, it is unlikely that the plant-based diets provide advantages but also not suffer from drastic disadvantages when they are compared to omnivore diets for strength, anaerobic or aerobic exercise performance. However, plant-based diets typically reduce the risk of developing uh, numerous chronic diseases over the lifespan and require fewer natural resources for uh, for production compared to meat-containing diets. Uh, The vegan diet is mainly associated with religious and ethical beliefs, environmental concerns, cultural and social values, as well as uh, potential health benefits. For the purpose of this podcast episode, I'll be focusing on the health implications as I'm not looking to say if the diet is good or bad outside of the effects on the individual. So we're not talking about the wide scale thing of production of food and overall environmental sustainability. This is solely an aim of seeing whether the diet is a long term solution. Um, and the effects and what maybe you might have to monitor. Okay, so let's start with a high-level kind of overview of the benefits and explain some factors that have gone into well, what I have used when uh, getting all this information together. 
Um, so observational data shows that vegetarians tend to have better cardiovascular outcomes compared to those consuming an omnivorous diet, uh, including a reduced risk of morbidity and mortality uh, from heart disease. Morbidity just being uh, like you're being sick of the diet, so uh, it's not the diet, the illness, so carrying the illness, and then mortality is obviously the fatal side of things. Uh, reduce incidence of cancers, particularly among uh, vegans. The decreased risk of de developing type 2 diabetes. A decreased risk of developing metabolic syndrome. Uh, and lower all-cause mortality. Um, these positive health outcomes um, are thought to likely relate to lower body mass index, BMI, uh, lower glucose levels, lower systolic and diastolic blood pressure, uh, lower total and low density lipoprotein cholesterol, so that's LDLC when you look at it on your uh, blood work, uh, lower triglycerides, lower levels of uric acid and high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which effectively translates to lower inflammation, uh, and higher levels of plasma uh, ascorbic acid, reducing effectively oxidative stress um, observed among vegetarians. All these are amazing health benefits, but there is an issue to note with a lot of this, these, these results. Uh, the main problem uh, with a lot of the observational studies is the presence of co-founders and a selection bias. Uh, this is which is where, which are prevented, sorry, um, in randomized controlled trials through randomization uh, and blinding. A co-founder can be defined as any factor that is related not only to the intervention, for example, the treatment, but also to uh, the outcome and could affect both. One good example is age. So say you've got a study on a relationship between smoking, which is the exposure, and lung cancer, which is the outcome. Uh, age could be implicated as a factor that would increase uh, the incidence of the outcome. If one of the groups, say the smokers or the non-smokers, had an older population in general, the increase in lung cancer could be influenced by age as a co-founder and not by the exposure studied. Obviously we know that smoking is bad, but if you wanted to do it the inverse way, you could get a very young population of people smoking and a very old population of people not smoking and find that well, the, the non-smokers had higher outcomes of lung cancer simply because they were older and they had, you know, from age-related cancer development um, and not the actual exposure to smoking. However, to be fair, advanced statistical tools may enable good and reliable control over many co-founders. Uh, sorry, I've been saying co-founders, confounders. Um, when correctly performed, some tools like uh, propensity scores and sensitivity analysis could drastically reduce bias caused by the lack of randomization. This helps improve the validity of these claims. Okay, now on to more about the diet itself and what is being consumed. So as a very quick uh, overview, vegans consume the least energy, saturated fat, sodium and calcium, but the most fiber and iron when compared to other vegetarians and omnivores. However, this high iron consumption is not often uh, reflected in serum ferritin stores, which is effectively how you figure out how much iron 
someone has in the body. A vegan diet is generally rich in carbohydrates, omega-6 fatty acids, uh, dietary fibers, uh, carotenoids, folic acid, vitamin C, vitamin E, and magnesium, and relatively low in proteins, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, vitamin B12, vitamin D, uh, and calcium, iron, zinc, and iodine. Uh, you see that iron has been mentioned here twice. It's because although the diet actually consumes a lot of iron um, orally, um, the actual reflection of iron used in the body and translating into ferritin stores is quite low. So moving on from that very brief kind of overview, I think it's important to talk about what is arguably one of the most critical parts of this diet and the biggest implications that it has on to people. And to begin with, we're going to have to talk about protein quality and quantity. So protein quality is another concept often spoken about when comparing vegan and vegetarian diets to omnivores diets. Uh, several features differentiate plant-based protein from animal-based protein in addition to the obvious differences in their source. Um, of the indispensable amino acids, branched-chain amino acids, BCAAs, are particularly important for promoting muscle protein synthesis and include leucine, isoleucine, uh, valine, valine, I'm not 100% sure on the pronunciation of that. Um, these amino acids are more concentrated in animal-based proteins compared to plant-based proteins. Uh, digestion and absorption rates of different proteins can also differ and thus impact mo uh, sorry impact post-meal muscle protein synthesis rates. Although interesting, although interestingly, intervention studies utilizing either a whey protein or a soy supplement in conjunction with strength training typically yield negligible differences between groups for lean mass development as plant-based protein supplements are often supplemented with adequate BCAAs. So this is where protein supplementation can become quite important for people on a vegan diet because typically the protein they're consuming isn't in um, doesn't have adequate BCAAs unless they're consuming a larger amount whereas protein supplements are often supplemented themselves with this adequate profile. On the topic of protein, um, people may mention in response to protein quality and quantity that if it's good enough for muscular bulls then it surely is good enough uh, for humans. Like if a cow, a bull, uh, any ruminant animal gets so large on uh, simply grass then why can't we do the same? It's because there's a slight, well, quite a major difference in how our bodies work. Cows um, and other ruminants can be considered upcyclers. For every 60 grams of plant-based protein that they intake, they can upcycle this to approximately 100 grams due to the bacteria in their gut that can rebalance the amino acid profile. Now, in response, if you're just thinking about this, this divides the laws of physics. You may be thinking that you can't just create protein out of nothing, so this surely can't be true. Um, well, this works because protein is made up of partially nitrogen. This is where things like nitrogen spiking come from, where you add nitrogen to a protein powder and register it as uh, part of the protein content. But not all of the nitrogen in plants is 
protein bound. They can, the animal can take this non-protein bound nitrogen and use their gut bacteria to upcycle it into high quality protein. In contrast to humans who may utilize as little as 40% of the protein found in plant materials in contrast between 90 and 90% of animal protein depending on its source. For example, a whey protein powder, you're pretty much talking 99% absorption where say maybe a fattier, fibrous uh, ribeye maybe you're getting slightly less. But for the most part, because of the difference in our gut microbiome to that of a ruminant animal, especially cows, for example, we are unable to rebalance these amino acid profiles, which means they can remain incredibly anabolic on this somewhat poor protein source in comparison to us, which will really struggle to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, especially when we're consuming moderate amounts of calories. So then it's important to consider the variables that affect your protein intake. So variables that affect dietary protein requirements to optimize muscle protein synthesis include age, physical activity, uh, physical expenditure, uh, and energy balance, which could affect whether following a plant-based diet is optional or not for you. Young adults, for example, need less protein per meal or snack, somewhere around 0.24 grams per kilogram to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis compared to older adults who can need as much as 0.4 grams per kilogram. Uh, physical activity level also affects protein needs, although the dietary reference intake to, uh, intakes do not make specific provisions for athletes. The American College of Sports Medicine, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and Dietitians of Canada in a joint position statement recommend athletes consume 1.2 to 1.7 grams per kilogram per day. During times of energy restriction, in order to promote uh, the retention of lean body mass, athletes may be encouraged to consume up to 2 grams per kilogram per day. Um, now, what you have to then start considering is your total kind of macro profile. So this is where another kind of issue comes into play surrounding plant-based protein. With these protein values in mind, the, the 1.2 to 1.7 grams per uh, kilogram per day, um, there becomes uh, a bit of a problem. The issue is getting in enough protein while not consuming too many calories and throwing off macros as a whole. Now I'm about to say a lot of numbers, so prepare yourself. Hopefully you get through this in one piece. Let's start with the protein requirements of an 80 kilogram athlete um, attempting to consume 1.7 grams per kilogram per day. So they're not even in say a deficit where they need to consume two grams per kilogram per day. This means a total protein requirement of 136 grams per day. Now anyone who's kind of been keen on the gym and is of a sizable size because you've also got if we go into pounds, one gram per pound, this 136 grams, depending on who you are, can seem like not a lot. But let's say that a mixture of lentils and various beans are going to be your primary source of protein. I actually purposefully ignored nuts due to how much they're going to rise this calorie uh, figure. I was trying to get this as low as possible effectively whilst maximizing protein. I was trying to get the most protein for your caloric buck. Um, but 
with that profile, <clears throat> on average, you're going to be consuming 334 calories per 23.5 grams of protein, um, with 61 grams of carbohydrates being accompanied with that protein. This result would be 1,932 calories to obtain that protein goal, of which over 60% would be coming from carbohydrates. Nuts can be used, as I've said, to balance the carb-to-fat ratio, however significantly increase the total calorie count. They would increase it from 334 to, on average, about 374 calories. So then, obviously, once you're multiplying this up, you're well into 2,000 calories to achieve the 136 grams of protein. Using animal protein, um, the two I put together was just a uh, cut of chicken breast and then a 7% uh, fat minced beef. Um, only requires 131 calories to obtain 22 grams of protein, meaning that only 809 calories under half are needed to achieve this protein goal. Uh, so from this, it is clear to see where limitations of the diet can arise when attempting to consume adequate protein for athletic performance and muscular hypertrophy. And this is with a moderate amount of protein. This issue only gets worse when you're trying to consume one gram per pound, as I've said already, or two grams per kilogram. Now, because exercise performance is my current aim in general, I thought it'd be good to just sneak in a bit of that into this vegan episode. So, muscular adaptions can be triggered by exercise and diet. As a vegan and vegetarian diet differ in nutritional composition compared to omnivorous diets, a change in dietary regime might also alter physiological responses to, to physical exercise and influence your physical performance. Unfortunately, there were no significant differences between groups for VO2 max. Time to exhaustion on endurance tests, maximal voluntary con uh, contraction, or isometric endurance upon adaption to the vegetarian or vegan diet. There is, however, one thing to consider. Vegans tend to uh, be deficient in vitamin D. Uh, the knockdown, so like kind of the inhibiting vitamin D receptor VDR in the C2C12 myoblast results in a decreased mitochondrial oxidative capacity and ATP production showing the strength vitamin D plays in endurance performance. Now, ATP is key, it is the energy currency of your muscles. So if that production is down, then there is reason to suggest that this could affect uh, endurance performance that maybe wasn't detected initially on other studies. Uh, as vegans consume significantly less vitamin D compared to omnivores, this may affect endurance performance, of course. A recent study has shown a positive association between vitamin D status and endurance performance, but also showed that vitamin D supplementation did not improve exercise performance. Therefore, this is another time when studies can be a little tricky. Data on vitamin D supplementation and endurance exercise performance are still inconsistent, and this field requires further research, is what they stated. However, in spite of differences in macro and micronutrient intake between vegetarians and omnivores, as well as some physiological differences such as lower total body creatine 
and plasma creatine among vegetarians, exercise performance does not appear to differ between dietary groups across multiple measures and types of activities. As much of this research has been done with recreational athletes, further work has been suggested to need to be done on high-performance athletes. But, unlikely that any of us are at the pinnacle of performance, so it's not for us to worry. Now, back to the vitamin D, because you may be confused as to what was going over there. There is a concept of reverse causality that the people with higher vitamin D from the onset were more active initially, spent more time outside, therefore had higher levels of vitamin D and therefore also because they were active had better muscular contractions and healthier muscles in general so did better on tests and did better on endurance and strength activities. And then when supplementation of vitamin D happened, obviously the actual stimulus that was occurring was no longer present because they were just picking two random groups. And therefore, the adaptions were not seen. If anything, there is some evidence to suggest that too high a level of vitamin D can prove toxic in the sense of it actually inhibits muscular performance. So it may not be a bad thing but also a bad thing at the same time that they are deficient in vitamin d okay on to then something that people tend to be more interested in in general is weight loss uh, so plant-based diets have been shown to be effective in body weight loss in particular the reduction of visceral and subfacial fat in the muscle tissue which in turn is involved in glucose uh, homeostasis there are two mechanisms that seem to be involved in the body weight loss associated with the diet. The first mechanism is linked to fiber content which has been correlated in other studies separate to the diet with weight loss, while the second is uh, linked to the increased uh, postprandial energy expenditure, so post-meal the energy, a bit like with a high protein consumption, just more energy expenditure post-meal. Uh, that's basically the, the concept and then moving on to the gut microbiome which is something I thought would be quite interesting uh, and there is a lot of work on it it is just incredibly complex and there is a lot going on but to simplify um, it is a well documented that long-term dietary changes will result in a change in the gut microbiome to adapt to the changes in food present in the gut the general report on the effects of the vegan diet is anti-inflammatory properties on certain diseases including inflammatory arthritis and multiple sclerosis when compared to the makeup of omnivores microbiome. The main mechanisms thought to be contributing to this are the high dietary fiber and the elimination of animal fats which apparently can be pro-inflammatory due to the bacteria needed to digest them. Um, this information is far from being set in stone and more research on pretty much every paper. The, 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 the theme is more research is needed to be done on this topic. Now something that has been thought to be uh, fairly well studied and evident currently is vitamin deficiencies in the well, associated with the vegan diet. So let's start with B12 because that is one that is spoken about a lot and is plastered a lot over um, various vegan foods as a supplement contained within them. 
So numerous studies have focused attention on possible deficiencies of vitamin B12 in vegans as it's contained in foods like meat, eggs, fish, milk, cheese, etc. All things that are being eliminated in the diet. Now, vitamin B12 is an essential micronutrient which is involved in numerous uh, biochemical uh, activities such as um, maturation of red blood cells, the functioning of nervous system and the biosynthesis of neurotransmitters. Signs of uh, and symptoms of vitamin B12 deficiencies are well known. They are pretty long. They include fatigue, wheezing, lack of energy, headache, irritability, possible anemia, depression, sleep disorders and other general impairments. So pretty unideal. Uh, vitamin B12 deficiency can occur both in vegetarians and vegans, although vegans are more likely because vegetarians are likely to consume things such as eggs. Uh, the exclusion of foods containing vitamin D B12 can only have an effect after a long period of time, as the liver reser reserves guarantee adequate levels of this vitamin for several years, meaning that people can go years on a diet without knowing they have a deficiency, then wonder what is going wrong when they take a turn after two or three or even four years following the diet. So moving on to vitamin D. Although vitamin D intake is shown to be lower in vegetarian, uh, vegans and vegetarians, there is not much evidence to show they are becoming deficient. With the patchy evidence on vitamin D supplementation, it does not seem necessary to take the supplement and can be found in things like mushrooms, so a food that can be still eaten by vegans. Iron, which I've already mentioned earlier on, but despite high iron content in vegans' diets, typically vegetarians have lower serum ferritin, which is your iron stores, than meat eaters. This is likely due to the reduced bioavailability of the type of iron found in plants. Uh, this is going to become a common theme. Um, simply, it is much harder for our body to digest and extract things like iron and protein from plant materials than animal meat, making an iron supplement a worthy addition to a vegan diet. This can further be improved by consuming a vitamin C rich foods or supplements alongside meals or iron rich foods or supplements. Then we have calcium. Um, a low intake of calcium among vegans cropped up in multiple studies. Uh, calcium intake among vegans is low, not only due to exclusion of dairy products, but also again due to the bioavailability issue of calcium in plant-based foods. Again, as I said, coming a bit of a trend. However, the calcium added to food products like some brands of tofu show the same level of bioavailability as milk. So by selecting fortified foods, this can be avoided. Uh, low calcium intake has been linked to several clinical conditions and high incidence of fractures. Vegans in particular have been shown to present a 30% higher rate of bone fractures than omnivores, which is likely compounded by the low vitamin D intake, which contributes as well to um, bone health. Vegan individuals could um, lower their calcium, uh, improve their calcium status by consuming more broccoli, sprouts, tofu, fortified plant milks and juices as well as fortified mineral waters so in this modern day and age the calcium deficiency can be avoided but it is again something that needs to be considered and well thought out when taking on the diet uh, vegans are also reported to be low in zinc again due to poor bioavailability uh, due to anti-nutritional factors 
zinc is an important part of the regulation of Im the immune system and in the function of many enzymes. Uh, inadequate zinc intake could be related to some conditions such as mental health disorders, for example, depression, uh, dermatitis, diarrhea, uh, alopecia, whose incidence is higher amongst vegans. Then iodine. Iodine is also appears to be low in vegans. However, this can be uh, rectified with the use of iodized salt, so it's kind of table salt, eating seaweed, uh, cranberries, and prunes. So essentially, there is quite a, a list of things that can you can become deficient if you're following this diet. So to conclude, I mean, this is a shorter episode than usual. There was a lot of information on the diet, but so much of it wasn't of great quality. Um, so I tried to focus on the bits that seemed clear and seemed to make sense in line with various other parts of the diet. Um, so, for example, saying that it was going to boost muscle mass drastically when we're also saying that gaining adequate protein and utilizing that protein is hard didn't seem like something fair to put in. But to wrap it all up, um, avoiding nutrient deficiencies whilst following the vegan diet can be clearly challenging. In general, vegan diets um, where the intake of foods from several food groups, for example, vegetables, fruits, legumes, uh, cere um, cereals and nuts, soy and high quality oils can be characterized as like a healthy and balanced diet. However, the low intakes of vitamin B2, uh, niacin, B12, D, iron, calcium and iodine cannot and should not uh, be overlooked and a rigorous and uh, sort of deliberate supplement regime uh, or careful food selection is important as part of this diet. Uh, there is limited evidence to support any sort of improvement in athletic performance and the issue surrounding protein could make it hard to stick to the diet during peak training phases or during times of both weight loss and muscle gain. Not saying you're doing the same to both at the same time, but as we said before, getting that two grams per kilogram uh, per day, sorry, yes, per day, is going to be hard. And that's kind of the numbers you're looking at when you're really trying to pack on size or you're trying to cut back without losing that lean muscle mass. It's definitely a diet that can work, but will take a lot of work. And it's is one that should probably be avoided, I would say, in uh, childhood just due to the calcium parts and the protein, a time when you're really just, you know, energy hungry um, is probably not the ideal solution. Now, if you're coming onto the diet because you think it's going to help you lose weight or you're coming onto it because you think it will boost performance and so on and so forth, it doesn't look like that's the case. If the reason, however, is one of the ones initially mentioned like some kind of religious factor ethical factors environmental factors then the diet is perfectly valid in the sense you are not going to die effectively it it can be equally nutritional as a omnivorous diet it just takes a lot more work and you're really going to have to dig through uh, different bits of research to kind of figure out what your supplement profile is going to have to look like 
what different fortified foods there are and how you tackle the uh, the protein implications that you're going to really struggle with. So with that, thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want more content like this, there are plenty of other previous episodes to check out. But before you do, why not follow the podcast or leave it a rating wherever you get your podcast from, or even better, share it with a friend. For any comments, feedback, or if you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, I can be contacted at the vo2lounge at gmail.com. And with that, I will see you in the next one.